Welcome to the conversation on the Young Turks Network. We got a great guest for you guys. He sounded like he's running for Joe Kennedy's old seat in uh, old seat. He just left to run for Senate in Massachusetts. It's Massachusetts fourth district US Congress. Uh, Isan, welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, thank you so much for having me. So exciting to have this conversation with you. Uh, so you kidding me, I'm excited. Uh, you might soon be a congresswoman, cross your fingers. Now, the reason I say that is because Isan uh, is the most progressive candidate in that race. Uh, so let's talk about the race a little bit. Um, is there still nine of you running? Uh, and so tell me about who's running for this seat and, and how it's playing out. Well, there is eight of them, one of me running for this seat. A huge field of uh, corporate uh, complacent politicians um, who are seeking a career in politics and who don't necessarily come with the lived experiences and the professional experiences needed to serve this district. Um, this is a hugely gerrymandered district. And what I say by gerrymandered is not in the way of blue versus red, but of top versus down. We have a few towns who are, you know, some of the richest towns in the country, coupled with some of the poorest towns in, this, in the Commonwealth. Um, and that means we need somebody who can serve the working families in the districts who have been underrepresented and, and silenced for generations. And I look forward to, to being that person for District 4 and for, for my, my constituents. So I, I read that even though a lot of the people you're running against are moguls, business people. I mean, these are like corporate Democrat 101 stuff. I think that people running against you have like five Harvard degrees in the combined, etc. It's a very standard Democratic establishment stuff, but that that you outraised them in the last quarter. Is that true? So, a lot of what I have done on this campaign was to create a coalition of grassroots through funding and through volunteers. But as you know, with COVID-19, campaigns like ours have been suffering from lack of fundraising. And you've run for, for, Congress, for Congress before and you understand how hard it is to fundraise. But it's really a time for us to think about how we can truly fight for a true progressive win in Congress and beyond. And that means putting every privilege that we have as individuals forward. You know, just like you ask everybody to donate to the campaign, you can donate to your own campaign. But what sets us apart is that we are running on the values of fighting for the most vulnerable in our communities. And I am more than proud to be in a position to fight for them with everything that I have, with my time, with my money, with my success, my and everything that I have to give for them. Okay, um, this you know again we're we're uh, very clear about our perspective here. So uh, I'm hoping we get lucky and uh, Isan wins. So Isan.org uh, is the website. Speaking of uh, raising money, uh, so we're not playing, and you could find the links down below. So obviously it's ihssane dot org. I love how I say obviously. That's not at all obvious. But donating and volunteering links are also in the description box below if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook. Okay, so Isan, let's talk about why you decided to run. What did you do before this, and what made you want to get into politics? Well, look, I. 
came to this country as a 20 year old with nothing. Um, and I survived poverty in the richest country in the world. Um, part of that was taking sub minimum wage jobs, facing sexual harassment and wage theft, and not having a union to protect me as an immigrant who, you know, as you know, restaurant workers don't aren't unionized in our country. Um, and more so is that my lived experiences in this country have taught me what does it feel like to be oppressed in, in a system that has so much wealth and resources? What does it feel like that millions of Americans don't have health insurance? Uh, many are on the, living on the streets. Many ha have lost their jobs during this pandemic and lost their health insurance with that. And so I vowed that I will build power to dismantle these oppressive systems and build the America that I dreamed of since I was a little three year old sexual abuse survivor. And I've been doing that since I got here. I not only served in the restaurants and babysat the babies, but I also fought the biggest corporations on Wall Street, the biggest banks who had gotten blank bailout checks in after the 2008 financial crisis to hold their CEOs accountable to, to stop them from from distributing big bonuses and, and big money to shareholders and instead to save money for rainy days so that they can bail themselves out instead in case of, of another economic depression. But the problem is that when Trump took office, he not only threatened our communities, and especially myself being an immigrant, being a woman of color, being um, a Muslim person, person um, or, or a, a corporate greed fighter, which is why I call myself his, his worst nightmare, and I'm proud to be that. Um, but he also dismantled the safety programs that we had put together. To fight for for the working families, and a lot of the corporate Democrats sided with him. Congressman Joe Kennedy was taking money from the same banks that I was regulating, and so you know I decided to fight harder. I decided to no longer stay in an organization that it that is that was going through a difficult time. Right, the Federal Reserve at the time. Was he, you know, Trump threatened to end its existence when I was working there? Um, you know, red flags started to become orange flags. I couldn't sit from within and see the revolving door between uh, our regulatory agencies, uh, the Wall Street, and the White House. I could not stand uh, watching the corruption ha happen in front of my eyes and be silenced. So I, I took to organizing. I organized for Medicare for all for a Green New Deal. I organized to get money out of politics, and this campaign has been a bridge between organizing on on the streets and organizing politically, so we can realize this political revolution together. Isan, you said something interesting there. Normally, when you're running for somebody's seat like Joe Kennedy's, people are reluctant. Politicians are reluctant to criticize the person who was there. Uh, but you just said that you were fighting against the uh, corporate greed of the 
people that Joe Kennedy was representing, if I if I heard you right. So what, what's your take on Kennedy? Well, I, I, I don't know if you know, but I was his challenger. I ran against him months before I had any idea he was gonna run for Senate. Um, I wish he had stayed and, and faced it, uh, but as we see, you know, there's an unnecessary challenge in the state at this point. Um, and my take is that we need less career politicians. We need um, less dynasty names, uh, and we need more people who have lived the lived experiences of the working families to fight for to fight boldly for anti-racist policies like Medicare for all, like the Green New Deal, like universal childcare, like $2,000 a month throughout the pandemic and beyond and more. And that that's gonna take people who have lived it and who understand the struggle and who are committed to delivering no matter the circumstance. Yeah, I mean, that would be a, a, a huge change going from Joe Kennedy, who was a classic corporate Democrat with a giant name uh, and a, it comes from a dynasty family to a young immigrant uh, who came here with nothing, uh, Muslim American uh, and and uh, fighting for progressive values. So it's a really interesting election. Did I mention Isan.org? I think I mentioned it. Uh, did I mention the links are down below? I think I did. Uh, if you don't run on corporate money, you need people like you guys to deliver uh, for these candidates. And if you do, as you saw with Jamal Bowman and AOC and so many others, it can actually work. In fact, one of those uh, Just Democrats endorsed you, Ilhan Omar. Um, uh, how much of an impact has that had, Isan? A huge impact. You know, we already had uh, hundreds of volunteers on the campaign, uh, but the the phones have not stopped ringing. Um, we have you know phone banks going on every day, but it's not just the impact on you know the the mechanics of the campaign. It's the impact on the movement. Her being a leader uh, in the Black Lives Matter movement and and really providing a safe space for her community to decide for itself to defund the police um, and to, to push for policies that are anti-racist. Uh, you know, she, she leads by example uh, and she has been an inspiration to me. You know, she, she's also, uh, she's a refugee from Africa. Uh, she's a sister in the struggle and, and she's a true fighter. And I'm, I would be honored to serve along her side. Isan, real quick, we got a, a less than a minute left. Uh, I know, uh, you immigrated here. Can you tell us real quick how that came about and why? Where did you come from and why did your family choose to come to America? You're asking the hardest question. It was right. a long story and and it deserves a longer interview. But look, I grew up to a family where my father was a public school teacher. My mom was a farmer. I lost my father when I was only 13 because we couldn't afford his health to take care of his heart condition. And coming to America was a very, very far dream. People like me don't get a visa to come here. So it was a miracle to actually get that visitor visa and be able to become a student here and then uh, and then get a, a green card and then citizenship and and people who are listening understand how much paperwork and scrutiny people have to go through to to get that citizenship and be truly you know accept hopefully hopefully accepted as an American. 
Yeah, so uh, I like to give people nicknames. So uh, congrats, you're now the American dream. Um, so, <laughs> and- <laughs> Not yet, not yet, not okay. yet. We will no, realize no. it together in Congress, yes. No, no, already what you've accomplished is amazing. And so th this is what America looks like now, uh, and I love it. Uh, Isan.org is the website, Isan like you're running for Congress in Massachusetts 4th District. Thank you so much for being on the Young Turks, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. All right, back on the conversation. Joining me now, Wade McMullen. He's the managing attorney at Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights. And we wanted to talk about Donald Trump's attempts to block foreign workers from coming into the country. Wade, welcome to the show. We appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So tell us, I mean, Donald Trump has try to block people from coming into this country from the minute he started running back in 2015. Obviously talking about a total ban on Muslims until we figure out what the hell is going on. I don't know if he's figured out what the hell is going on yet, but he's tried to block different immigrants in different ways. What is his latest attempt when it comes to foreign workers? Sure, so like you said, this is part and parcel of the nativist white supremacist agenda from the very beginning of this administration, even dating back to Stephen Miller's agenda while he was an aide for Senator Sessions to essentially shut down all forms of immigration to this country to preserve what nativist and white supremacists main goal is, is their you know tenuous grip on a white majority of this country. Um, and so we we have to you know start there and seeing what is behind this. But but you're right, this is this is new. This isn't separating families at the border who are seeking asylum or anything like that. Um, now they're attacking a, a guest worker program, a worker program for foreign workers um, called an H-1B visa. Uh, this visa is reserved for what they called high skilled workers. Um, typically people with advanced degrees who go work for tech companies or big consultant firms. Um, they come here on a three year visa, they can extend it for three more years. Um, and these are the workers that, you know, along with some um, seasonal uh, H2B non-agricultural workers uh, and some international student visa, um, you know, postgrad workers that they are now trying to shut down as as well. So let me play the role of Stephen Miller here for a second, if I could bear it. Um, it you know. What they say is, hey, wait, look, uh, these are high paying jobs that should go to Americans. And so uh, that's what we promised our voters. We said we were gonna keep these jobs uh, at home. Well, why should we let these foreigners come in and take these good high paying jobs? Well, first of all, you're, the answer to that is, you know, Stephen Miller, if you really cared about workers in the economy, if this administration cared about workers in the economy, you know, they wouldn't have passed a, you know, a wholesale, um, you know, tax break for corporations and, you know, defunded, you know, continue to defund the social safety net and and things like education uh, and opportunity um, that actually, you know, allows workers to have an education and to grow in their earnings um, over the years. So that's the first thing to respond with is if the economy, if US workers are actually your concern, let's fight for unions, let's fight for jobs, let's fight for education and the conditions that produce good employment in this country. Um, but we know what Stephen Miller is all about. He's all about a white supremacist nativist agenda to shut down immigration and preserve a racial hierarchy uh, in this country. Um, the problem is Democrats for a long time have left 
left um, things, like left programs like this H1B visa program unexamined, right? Uh, and so we have to be able to push back as well, not cede ground to the nativist agenda that Stephen Miller and the Trump administration have, but to also be able to critique the H1B program, right? So the H1B visa program does let corporations off the hook to pay lower wages to high skilled workers coming in from abroad. Um, and we should be asking hard questions like, why not require corporations to pay more in taxes so we can fund an education system to educate the workforce right here at home instead of letting them off the hook to pay the taxes and then allowing them to subsidize you know lower salary jobs with foreign workers so it's a legitimate critique from the left that gets marginalized in mainstream democratic conversations and particularly now when we're doing so much to react against the just blatant racist nativism coming out of this administration you know sometimes we're ill-equipped on the left to actually push back with nuance on where we should be pushing okay I like this interview nuance broke out so <laughs> quick question and I'll get to who actually runs this country how many workers does this affect you know, it's a good question. So um, the administration itself is saying the ban on worker visas combined with uh, a, a similar ban on extending um, uh, restrictions of the issuance of new green cards is gonna keep as many as 525,000 foreign workers out of the country for the rest of the year. Um, uh, this is also including spouses, of workers, you know, workers for you know international corporations. They can't transfer offices now to the United States if they're foreign-born, and so so as many as half a million workers are going to be prevented from coming into the United States this year, according to the administration, inclusive of H-1B, H-2B, J-1 visas, and the green card restrictions. Actually, let me follow up on that a little bit because that's a that's a big number. And so um, I, I've seen uh, and covered the stories where people say, "Oh my God, you know, we, we don't need these farm workers or the meatpacking plant workers that are coming in sometimes undocumented, and they'll uh, do a raid, uh, usually in a, a southern state. Uh, they'll kick those people out, and then the economy will collapse, and and they literally won't be able to find people to replace them, uh, American workers to replace them, and they'll they'll panic, and then they'll bring them back." Okay, um, is that true in the in the tech market in the high end uh, that a lot of these H one Bs um, are, are in? Because it's a totally different market. Do we really have half a million uh, educated Americans who could fill those jobs, and, and we're we're just not giving it to them? Yeah, so so to be clear, the half a million marker includes um, you know lower skilled uh, seasonal workers in tourism and hospitality, as well as grad students who are seeking employment temporarily, and spouses and green card seekers too. So the H-1B high skilled uh, is usually capped around. It varies per year, but recently in recent years, it's been capped around sixty-five thousand per year. Plus, nonprofits, colleges, government research agencies um, are able to um, you know aren't subject to that cap. So they can bring in workers as they see fit. But it's a really good question to ask. And I think it brings up 
So on the one hand, yes, you know, our education system in this country is failing the American workforce. You know, we're not producing the level of skills needed for all of the tech jobs and opportunity there is in this country. And and if you want to get at creating jobs, we need to fund the education. We need to, you know, remove student debt. We need to allow the American workforce to transition away from, you know, outdated economies to the one that is governing the world right now. Um, uh, and so absolutely we should be doing that. Unfortunately, we just don't have that right now. And so uh, we have to be wary of corporate interests lobbying for this visa to remain in place because it does allow them to pay lower wages. But at the same time, they're off the hook from paying taxes to funding the education system that would produce the workers and the skills to fill those jobs. Yeah, when you don't have a, a, an intelligence solution and one that's well thought out and planned uh, and and works towards a long-term solution, what you get is a blunt instrument uh, done for nativist reasons like Trump and, and Stephen Miller are doing right now. And, and when you do a blunt instrument, you're gonna screw it up in 18 different ways, right? You're gonna block people you shouldn't block, you're gonna let in people you shouldn't let in and on and on. And so, but the people who really don't want to fix the system overall is actually not Trump. That's a different category as we just discussed. The folks who don't wanna fix it are corporations because they have access to lower wage workers, whether it's high end or low end, right? And so isn't it true that whether it's the Republican Party or the and the Democratic Party, not or, and the Democratic Party, that we haven't fixed this in decades, not out of accident or negligence, it's because corporations are the largest donors to the Democratic and Republican parties. We haven't fixed it on purpose. We had an expressly racist immigration system, you know, in the 1980s with the Chinese Exclusion Act, followed by the, you know, national origin quotas in place in the 1920s that essentially took the racial makeup of the U.S. at the time and proportioned visas according to that to maintain the racial hierarchy. You know, in the 60s when we liberalized the immigration system and a lot more black and brown and other immigrants started coming to this country. The downside to that was that we created this hierarchy of, you know, there's a good way to come, a legal way, and an illegal way. You know, and like you said, corporate interests benefit from that division. You know, from the framing of immigration as a problem to be fixed instead of a boon to the economy. You know, I know of no moral framework that exists on this earth until you start to wade into nativist and nationalist territory that says. I'm going to prevent a human being from seeking a better opportunity for their lives because of the arbitrariness of where and what time they were born on what side of river or what side of a fence, right? And so if we would stop seeing immigration as a problem, framing it as that way, you know, if Democrats would, you know, stop just opposing Trump's performative physical border wall, but also stop saying we need to militarize and secure our borders through a smart wall, which means more surveillance, more militarization, more criminalization. Then we'd actually get to the root causes of what's broken in our immigration system. Stop seeing it as a problem, seeing it for what it is, an immoral decision to keep people away from opportunity and a free pass to corporations to exploit workers. So if Trump was reelection, is this even going to happen? The reason that I ask that is, Trump likes the politics of being against brown people who are immigrating into this country. But every once in a while he hugs some puffs, but then he seems to pull it back as soon as the, his corporate donors tell him, hey, boy, that's not what we put you in office for. So I'm putting it in a harsh way, but it, how much truth is there to that? 
You know, like I said, this has been on Stephen Miller's agenda, the nativist agenda um, from the get go. They want to shut down all immigration to this country because they know they can't pass a Muslim ban and have it stand. They can't just ban Mexicans and brown people and have it stand. So their goal at this point is to shut down all immigration. So sure, there's corporate overlords that want to exploit labor, but there's also a very racist white supremacist nativist push that is fueling the Trump campaign and administration. And so we can't discount that. All right, Wade McMullen from the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Group. Thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thank you for shedding a light on this issue. Appreciate you, take care.